Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Today, we're concluding Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's series, The Triumph of Life. He is joined in conversation by Rabbi Tali Adler. It's such a pleasure to hear two of my favorite teachers engage on this topic and help us better understand the ultimate value of life. Let's listen in. If the first session was particularly focused, you might say on the grand vision or the broader world vision of the Yahadud of Judaism of Torah, namely on the great principle of the Torah that a human being is in the image of God and that every human being therefore is born and entitled to the dignities of being treated as of infinite value, equality and unique. What I tried to describe in the first session particularly was the Torah's commitment that God has recruited human beings to take this magnificent creation, but upgrade it, repair it, if you will, tikkun, in two ways. One is to help and fill it with life, and secondly, to upgrade it so that it will sustain all life, and particularly the image of God, in the fullest dignity. In other words, a world in which we overcome poverty and hunger and war and sickness, so that every human being in everyday interaction and law and treatment is treated as of infinite value, equal and unique. Today's session will focus on the personal side and in two ways. One is how do I live my life right now? We're not in the messianic age. And in fact, at the present time, one can't live by messianic standards in many areas. And so how can I live right now my life on the side of life? That's our theme for the day. And to start with the central idea, I think, or I would argue behind covenant, behind the idea that we have joined in a partnership with God and with the generations to fill the world with life and upgrade the world, tikkun olam, the personal life side, how I live right now, personally, one can make a simple declaration. According to the covenant idea, there is no moment or no behavior in life that is neutral. Every human behavior, every action, every moment of life, you have a moment of choice. You have a choice between life and death. By your actions, by your words, by your responses, you can increase life or you can increase death and decay. That's the choice that you make if you're aware, if you're conscious. So in a sense, at every moment and in every behavior, you can upgrade the quality of life of your own and of others or degrade or reduce the quality of life of others. So the covenant commitment, the central, you might say, commandment, is choose life. That is to say, every moment and every action, if you'll think about it, not just act naturally or routinely or unthinkingly, but if you will think directly and consciously reshape your behavior, you will do so to maximize life, and I would say to minimize death. And the way I, I put it that way, maximize and minimize, is because rarely in life is any action pure life or pure death for that matter. It's usually a mix, but the choice of choosing life then becomes, and this is the covenantal response, do the best you can to maximize the life element, the quality upgrade element, and minimize death, decay, or degradation. Now, so let's take a look at daily life, literally go through it and see what we're talking about. I should add as a comment, a footnote here, I believe the halakha, the general 
vision of detailed commandments and detailed behaviors in Jewish tradition, I believe should not be seen as a legal system in which we look to precedents, we look to commandments. And what the halakha is, I believe, is a kind of a guide, a statement of if you take this seriously, that you want to live every moment to maximize life and minimize degradation or death, then the halakha is giving you models. Here's a way of doing that very thing. Okay, so let's take a look at daily life. I start, well, I guess if you are starting as a Jew, I start with eating. Okay, eating. Obviously, eating is a matter of life. Very simply, if you don't eat, you will die. But in the moment of choosing what to eat, that's where it comes up to choose life or maximize choosing life or not. Let me take under this rubric, kashrut for a moment. Kashrut is generally thought of as a ritual statement, but it's not. I would argue it's a guide to how do you maximize life or reverence for life in your eating. So I start with the Torah's ideal of kashrut. The original and the prominent foundation of kashrut is that you're supposed to be a vegetarian because no animal should die for me to live, at least in a perfect world, no living animal would be put to death so that I could live. So as a matter of fact, the Torah says openly, in the Garden of Eden, that is to say in the world in its ideal form, before the reality that we're living in, and in the future messianic world, there will be, everybody will be vegetarian. In fact, according to the prophets in the messianic age, not only humans, but even animals, so, you know, the famous line, the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion, like the cattle, will eat hay, will eat straw. In other words, a universal vegetarianism that respects life in which all organisms do not live at the expense of killing others. Now, but that's the ideal. The whole point of covenant is reality. How do you live this ideal in the real world? And in the real world, under the covenant, eating meat is permitted for one, because humans need protein, and for two, because humans are hunters, and this has been a fundamental aspect of their capacity to feed and to stay alive and for evolutionary development. So meat is permitted temporarily, at least until the Messiah comes, but how do you keep the ideal? The Torah does not surrender the ideal. In fact, covenantal living is about moving from the present reality toward the ideal. So how does the Torah do that? The answer is number one, all vegetables, all fruits, all minerals, all plants are kosher. We want to encourage you to eat them. But if you do want to eat meat or animal life, then we permit it only with restrictions. The restrictions are a statement of the value and preciousness of life, which means that you should not be eating it casually and we should keep it as restricted as possible. Now the universal restriction I say universal because it applies according to the Torah, not just to Jews, but to all human beings, is not to eat the blood, not to eat the blood. All humans, not just Jews are commanded not to eat blood because blood is the carrier of life. The animal dies, a human dies if they lose their blood. And not eating the blood is an acknowledgement or a signal that it's wrong. I'm eating this, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to it. Tradition would call it because there's no alternative, but it's not the ideal. 
And humans should acknowledge that they do not own the life of the others that they're taking, and it should not be taken. Hence, I don't eat the blood. I, I, this is a side comment, and I will not go into it. I've often thought of the irony that the religion that teaches that all human beings can't touch blood has been smeared, the Jewish people smeared with this historical blood libel that somehow Jews take or eat the blood of others. Anyway, Kashrut goes on to say, you uphold the vegetarian ideal, not just by not eating blood, but the more developed the life you want to eat, the more restrictions you should accept. The obvious restriction, and starting with the lowest form, the lowest life form permitted to eat is fish. Fish, less developed life, is restricted in one fundamental way, species. The Torah gives the sign of scales and fins for all kosher fish. Now, bluntly, I'm guessing it could be just as well a different set of signs. The main point is it's restricting, very much restricting the number of species you're allowed to eat. But if you want to go higher on the life development scale and eat a higher, namely birds, we have additional restrictions. Yes, we start with restriction on species. Interestingly enough, the restriction on species is not given the signal of the scales or fins. It's a, it's a little not so clear and determined. But the one signal that we do have is we know if it has a talon, if the bird lives by hunting, if it's primarily a carnivore, it's not kosher. And those birds that are kosher are permitted. We have the restriction A of species, and now a second restriction, because this is a higher form, namely slaughter or shechita. And the point of shechita is, of course, to kill the animal swiftly, painlessly with one stroke. So again, this restriction shows that even in taking the life, there is awareness of the value and reverence and feelings of the other creature. Now, if you want to go higher on the scale of life, we get to animals. And here we have first restriction of species again, and again, clearly meant to reduce. Although again, it's interesting, the signal, the, the, the signs of the kosher animal, chewing the cud and splitting the hoof, but chewing the cud is a sign of a herbivore. In other words, again, animals that are kosher are not hunters. They don't live by hunting. You are what you eat, I guess, is what the Torah is saying, and we don't want you to be living off killing and eating the meat of others. So species is restricted. Again, slaughter, shechita required, so it's swift, painless. And thirdly, preparation, because this is the highest form, we had an additional prohibition. What's that prohibition? It's meat and milk not coming together, which again is very clearly a signal because milk, mother's milk particularly, is the source of life. Meat is the symbol and the example of something killed the dead animal. Never the two shall meet because life against death, you really should have chosen. Uh, life you chose to mix in with death, but at least keep them separate. So again, if you're thinking through the logic that in your food and in your choice of food, food you have to show reverence for life, let's follow through the logic of this halacha, which as I say, is not merely inherited or a legal system. It projects my choice of life right now at this moment. Keep going. What does it mean? to choose life in your eating, not just choosing kosher food. How about, will you choose to eat healthy versus something full of fat, sugar, and ingredients that in fact 
are going to fill your heart with cholesterol and your system with, with uh, sugar that will bring, God forbid, on diabetes and so on and so forth. So that's a choice you make at this next moment that you make a choice. And then not stopping. Look at the species, even if it's a kosher species. Is it overfished? Is it endangered? In which case, again, you're choosing life by not eating such an animal. And how about you're about to eat meat? Stop again and ask yourself, are we going to continue to eat um, cattle, for example, animal beef, which is very, very hard on the environment? Cows are a major source of methane and global warming and so on and so forth. Or are you going to choose to eat what you do eat in this area that has more respect for environment and less negative impact on making life possible? And then again, look again at the food you're about to eat. Was it, how was it brought into existence? How was it brought to you? Is this industrial farming? And with the monoculture, which is breaking, is it brought from far away, causing transportation and carbon and other things? Or is this something that in fact is free range, less pain, less, not the industrial farming of animals that abuses them and cramps them, but each of these decisions is a choice of do I respect life? Do I increase life? Do I protect life in my choice of food? I should add perhaps, and I know but perhaps, how about the workers who developed it, who prepared it? Were they prepared? Were they protected in the field or exposed to, uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the various chemicals that threaten their life? And how about in the third world, fair trade, chocolate? Were you, would you stop to see to make sure that your choice of food did not in fact degrade the life of somebody else or rather upheld it and protected it? And by the way, I've spoken about food. I could have gone through the same routine about clothes and textiles. And we know that labor conditions that enable produce cheap clothes around the world are a serious part of the problem of human rights and human dignity around the world. So again, my choice of clothes has to take the same thing into account. The next article of clothes that I buy, will I be aware of choosing life against degrading life. For that matter, we will talk about the fur issue as against the synthetic. Now again, after I finish eating, I have to go to work. I'm going through a typical day, if you will, for a moment. Now looking back, let me stop before I go in, go to work and say, I personally pray before I eat in the morning. So I would just take a moment and say, what's prayer about in terms of not the ritual dimension, but how has it got to do with choosing life? But of course the answer in part is, because in prayer, I tune in to other levels of existence, to the fuller dimension of life, which is God, not the level that I see and touch and feel and hear, but on the level which intuitively and inwardly I turn and connect and realize there is a profound depth of life that goes beyond the surface. And this is the presence of God. And then if I go inward at the same time, I try to do a little self-judgment, how I behaved yesterday or review my relationships and the way I've treated people around me. And then again, when I put on Tefillin personally again, when I put on the hand, I try to do, what, will I, what did I do yesterday with my hands? Or even more important, what will I do today with my hands? 
And can I make sure, can I consciously divert this work for life as against degrading or death? And how about when I put on the head? Again, I try to say, what will I do today? What am I thinking and planning today? Can I turn that toward God, that is to say, toward life? Okay, now I'm ready to go to work. So what do I do next? Well, of course, here's your choice again, which side you're on. Do you use mass transportation, which places much less stress, much less carbon? Or do I go into a personal car? And you know, in the rush hour, everybody's in one person per car and jamming and wasting the lives of people in the rush hour. Okay, but I get into the car, what do I do next? Well, first of all, buckle up because that saves lives and that's commitment. That's driving without putting your seatbelt as the equivalent of eating trafe or consciously violating the Torah's fundamental commitment to protect your life. And then how do you drive? Recklessly in a rush to cut somebody off? Or do you drive under the influence? These are all decisions that are taken every moment of your life if you understand and you think about what you're doing, if you feel that you're a covenantal Jew. And then what kind of a car do you use? A hybrid or an electric car versus a gasoline powered again? What's your impact? What's your carbon footprint? Or if you're going into a city, a train as compared to a car or airplanes. And for that matter, while we're on the subject of airplanes, is this trip necessary? I guess Zoom is teaching us maybe not as necessary as you once thought. Now, in fact, let me throw that as a side. I mean, I'll come back to it at the end of the session. One definition of a living life on the side of life is the carbon footprint. That is to say that I reduce that footprint, that my ideal may be in, not just in business and production, but in personal life to strive for carbon neutral, at least reduction. Because if I leave behind more carbon, thanks to my living, than was there in the world before, in a way I'm operating against life. So that's part of the challenge of a broad definition of applying the halakha to live on the side of life. Now, again, I stress this, it's never or rarely a choice between pure life and pure death. In the real world, for example, again, that if you're gonna take a car, that's already sure it's a mix already. But on the other hand, because a car has made possible human dignity in that People live further away, able to go to jobs and have access to work and gives them dignity and, and earning power. But at the same time, can I take this moment and maximize life and reduce, whether it be the carbon or the side effects that are bad for the coach, for the environment? So now we've reached the stage of going to work and we're ready to work. Okay, well, let me take a moment to say about how do you work on the side of life? A good guide to this is Shabbat. I will come back to Shabbat. Of course, it's an alternative way of living life, and I will come back to that. But first, if you look at Shabbat laws themselves, there are not all physical effort, not all labor literally is prohibited, at least not in the Torah's ideal standard. The ideal standard of Shabbat is the work that builds the world, the kunulam, the world of civilization and culture, and all the constructive things, that world is done with, that's what that labor is about. It's called malacha in Hebrew, and it defines, I would say, dignified, creative work that upgrades the world. As in the language of the halacha, it's metakain, it improves, 
not in the Kalkale, destroys or degrades the world. That's just an example. And of course, work itself is critical because it not only allows self-support and living with dignity, but the dignity of self-support and the dignity of having choices. Now, again, thinking through my work, what kind of a product are you making? What kind of a product are you selling? Tikkun means that the products that you make will not be schlock that use once and breaks or a one-time use that in fact then becomes a source of pollution. But the work and the creativity that you do will be something permanent, dependable, constructive that widens people's minds, that enables them healthier dress, healthier eating, healthier activity. You're gonna avoid plastic that pollutes or the many, many little plastic that is now spreading through the ocean, which there's important research suggesting that's begun to affect reproduction and capacity in humans, as well as in the animals in the sea. So again, each of these products and choices is a choice of life or death, or maximizing life or minimizing it. And again, how does the work go itself? One of the definitions of Shabbat work that's prohibited on Shabbat, but it's a mitzvah all week long. It says six days a week shall you work. How about the purposeful work, mitkavein, that the work should not be just mindless, repetitive, but understand what it stands for, have a vision of what the outcome is. I'm thinking now of the major upgrade of car production in the 60s and 70s. They discovered that instead of working on a simple assembly line, they created so each one did one little action, but they didn't care about the whole car. They created labor groups together that were responsible for the whole car. And so they knew what they were doing. They had a sense that their work was dignified and accomplishing something. And as a result, they were extra careful to make sure that the installation of the brakes, the installation of the window, the installation of the air conditioning, each was done accurately and without error. And this is how the Japanese industry overnight really, or only in a decade, upgraded the quality of the cars and it actually broke through and became maybe a world power in this area. So that the work that gives purpose and dignity to the laborer comes out much more likely and closer to tikkun olam. And how about the professional side, the doctor? As a hair, it's much obvious, more obvious that I'm choosing life in the sense of treating people who are sick, preventing them from getting sicker or helping them heal. Or how about, but again, even there, do I pay attention? Do I pick up the uniqueness of each individual? Do I work with their system rather than overwhelm it with outside treatment or, or antibiotics? This is all an expression of being sensitive to and developing life. Or the lawyer, do I make sure that my work is honest on the side of justice, that it helps the equality and the dignity of all those that I'm working for. In short, again, one could go on through all the reasons, fair pay, equal pay, working conditions, cultural respect. These are all not just economic issues. These are ways in which we are committed as covenantal people to maximize the life and dignity and to minimize the erosion or the degradation of life. Now, again, having done all this, here the Shabbat turns around and says, we have something even deeper to offer you. As important and as creative and as visionary as creation and work and life is, there is a day, take a whole day in fact, in which you live. That's the whole purpose of the whole day. 
because in the end, it's an important lesson that I'm not my bank account. I'm not what I can create. I'm not what I can make or I can do the external world. I am a life, a person of infinite value and dignity. And so this is a day to do just that, to live with no pressure and no outside distractions. It's a day for relating. It's a day where I talk and speak and share relationships. It's a day where it's a mitzvah to make love because this is the environment in which total awareness of the other person and total access is possible. It's a day in short in which, yes, we eat good meals leisurely, in which we spend them with family, in which we sing songs, in which we share thoughts of Torah. This is all a way of maximizing the quality and the significance of my life. Now, again, one could go on and on. What's the next act <laughs> that you're going to do when you come home? Are you going to exercise? Are you going to go to the gym? Or are you going to become a couch potato? A couch potato is more fun, maybe, but you have chosen death. As against exercise, which has been shown, extends life, not to mention the quality of the life. And what's your next act in speech? The next word you say, again, the next word you say, you can give a routine stereotype lecture saying nothing new. And you know what? You have chosen things and you have used up 30 minutes of life of the people will never have again. You've chosen death. Or perhaps you can choose in the next word to look for something of insight that will enrich life, that will help the other person. And how about literally the normal speech of interchange? The next word I say to this person, they come to me for advice. Is it a word of possibility? Is it a word of praise? Is it a word of choosing life and giving this person a broader opportunity and helping them, mentoring them to get ahead and to get more fulfilled in their work? Or is it a work of degrading, of dismissal, of put down, in short, of a mini step of death for me or for the other person. Same thing with speech. The Torah says criticism to upgrade somebody. If you see they're doing something wrong, if you see that they're, they're awkward or they're doing something that makes them look bad, then the word of to correct is a mitzvah. You're helping them do better. You're helping them improve their own conversation. But turn around, a word of put down, a word, a Lashon Hara. What's Lashon Hara? I'm saying something negative, degrading about this person, but I don't need to. This person is a swindler, but I'm telling it to somebody else who has no need to know that. So what are these words? They're simply words of put down and saying, this is not an image of God of equal value. This is a no good person. The same words, if this person, the swindler, was about to make a business deal with my somebody else, it would be a mitzvah to tell the other person to look out and protect himself. But if I am using the words to degrade life, to dismiss another person, then the truth that I'm saying is no justification. It's a sin. It is where the truth becomes a lie. It's a lie that denies the dignity of the other person. So again, in every interaction, I have the choice to help them to improve their life and thereby mine or to ignore them, not to help at all, or to put down, or to be a bystander in the face of a terrible abuse, 
which is to choose death, less life for them and for me. If you look at the document of life and principles that I sent, was sent out, and I hope you'll go home and read, because I have listed there almost 30 examples of how the laws and details and practices and customs of the tradition really focus on life and its quality. I don't have time, but I hope you'll go home and read it. But let me just pick out one or two examples of what we're talking about. If you look at item number eight in the um, list, it's a requirement to protect life. It's a mitzvah to protect your life or other people's lives. Right? It's a prohibition to endanger yourself, to eat bad or poisonous food. It's a requirement to prevent, uh, put, build into your home or into your place of work protection against someone getting hurt. It's a mitzvah to practice medicine and how to heal people. In short, again, these are not simply casual rules or professional rules. These are commandments that represent the covenantal commitment to choose life. And of course, avoiding alcohol leads to drinking and bad behavior and health condition or drugs is another example of how one is commanded to protect life in everything we do. You'll take a look at number 13, to honor the parents, honor your parents. Well, of course, why do I honor my parents? The answer is, if it's a teenager, it may be tough, but the answer is because they're the source of my life. That is to say, they have given me the greatest gift. And it's interesting, Jewish tradition says that if a person gives birth to you and then gives you up for adoption, for whatever the reason, you still owe them honor as a parent because they have given you the ultimate gift of life. You also owe the adopting parent the honor and the respect too, because they have given you the quality of life. They have taken you and shaped you and raised you to what you have become. So again, these are all reflections of the challenge of every moment and every day. I'll finish with another example, number 24. Uh, number 24 which of course is the process of upgrading women. Again, it's not just feminism, one could apply it to racism. One could, it's, it's not just sexism that violates the equality of human beings, it's racism, it's anti-Semitism. All of these behaviors are to be judged by that very standard, the process of upgrading women, giving them their full dignity, which in our lifetime has become a very important force, is really a major attempt to not only choose life, but to upgrade the quality of life of women, treating them not as a second sex or as simply enablers, but the full capacity of human expression, human development. And of course, it's a commitment to improve the quality of life for discriminated against groups. And I would argue it's to improve the quality of life of the, of the rest of the people also. I'll finish therefore with a quote from Maimonides, which to me captures the main theme I've tried to say throughout this presentation. Maimonides' comment, when Moses is summarizing the Torah at the very end of his life, Deuteronomy 29, 15, and again 18, verse 18, uh, Maimonides quotes Moses in the Torah, hayom. I have put before you today et vetatov, et Moshe says, you know what this whole Torah is about? I've put before you, on the one hand, 
Chayim and Tov, life and good, and on the other hand, Etamavet v'arad, death and evil. Three verses later, he says, this on the two sides, there's the side of bracha, blessing, which is the side of life and good, and klala, curse, on the side of death and evil. What's the call of the Torah? You shall choose life. Says Rambam, notice how Moses had put this out before us. On the one hand, it's Chaim and Tov, life and good are together. Mavet and Ra, death and evil are together. They are in apposition with each other. They are synonyms of each other. To put it another way, says Marmon, every act of good, every mitzvah, in some way, is a choice of life or quality of life. You may have to check it out to work it out, but that's what it's about. The, Isaiah's vision is that in the world to come in the Messianic age, they will do no evil or acts of destruction. And then the whole world will know not only of God's presence, but of the triumph of life, which is the Jewish vision. Thank you so much, Rabietz. And I'll say especially thank you for choosing life today. You spoke about the way that giving a lecture that really introduces something new, something that can change people's lives is life-affirming. And I know for me, you did that this morning, and I'm really grateful. You spoke about balancing between life as an ultimate value while also affirming quality of life. That's a very important and nuanced part of your worldview. And one thing that I've been thinking about is that, unfortunately, across the world, that concept of quality of life is sometimes used to harm people with disabilities. For example, to deny them medical care because doctors sometimes see their lives as having less quality than those without disabilities or um, in particularly horrifying stories that appear in the news every so often to allow teenagers with disabilities to choose assisted suicide. Can you talk a little bit about what an ethic that values quality of life but also affirms the value of dig and dignity of disabled people looks like? and what Jewish language might have to add to that conversation particularly. Thank you for raising the issue, a very, very important issue. And it's interesting to, I'm certainly glad you said it. There's another implied issue right behind that, and I wanna say it openly. Even words that are intended for life, even words of Torah that are positive, can be applied in ways that are anti-life or you know, that Talmud has a, priceless passage, my father used to quote it to me very regularly, he said, Zohar, if you use the Torah properly, it's a samchayim, it's, it's, a, it's a medicine of cure in life. Lo Zohar, use it improperly, it can be a, a medicine of poison, it can be poison of death. I mean, people in the name of God, in the name of jihad, uh, for that, you know, have killed innocent people. And the Torah too, I mean, there are people in the name of the Torah who persecute or discriminate against others on the grounds, you know, that they're against the Torah, whatever. My point is, so it's a very important warning and tacit in your question. The specific application is even more urgent and I'm glad you brought it up. I put it very simply, the fundamental dignity of every human being, whether they are handicapped or not, the image of God, they are an image of God, and therefore, 
they are infinitely valuable. And the notion that I save them or don't save them because they're handicapped is a breach, a violation of the fundamental norm of Jewish tradition and of the Torah's own vision of what a human being is like. Now, again, I'm not saying that triage or sometimes doctors have to make choices. Who is more likely to survive? Who is more likely to live? These are tragic choices because we live in a world of finite capacity and resources, and yet people are entitled to infinite value. Again, the side text there is that we should be increasing the wealth of the world so that and using it to protect and upgrade human dignity, human life. And yes, the, the prophet's dream in the messianic age that we'll develop medicines, genes, you name it, that will overcome these handicaps. But until such time as these are overcome, handicapped people are image of God, they're infinitely valuable. And if it costs more, that's only a statement, a proper statement of what they're entitled to as an image of God and as a human being. And one could say that the quality of life of the society in a much deeper level is reflected in this. If the society feels it can't bother, or even sometimes tragically it can't afford, that's a statement of a serious flaw in the society. That's the measure of what the Jewish tradition says Tikkun Olam is about. The present status quo is not acceptable even if it's got many good qualities, we are determined to transform it into a world where everybody, including the handicapped, gets their fair. And in the meantime, access. In the meantime, special attention, special, yes, special privilege, whatever is necessary to enable these people. And for that matter, one should also be sensitive to the growth, like among uh, languages, sign language, in other words, all the activities that strengthen the capacity of people who are handicapped to um, function better at this time. These are all serious statements of respect and not a substitute for the fundamental obligation. You know, it's funny, I, was, I, was, I had a conversation about a year ago with a person, one of the principals in this Mobileye, it's an Israeli firm that was sold to Intel. They are developing autonomous driving, which in itself is an so again, to me, this is great religious frontier. They're developing computer-run cars that will save thousands and thousands of lives every year because they won't crash. But he told me one of the things they're doing in order to do that, it has to develop cameras that can photo everything around the area and translate it. Well, they developed a camera that not only translates it into picture or into electronic signals, but into things that blind people can in electronic signal so that the blind person, as it were, is getting what they do not get anymore from their natural uh, nerves, they're getting a picture. So I said to them, I said, number one, you know, again, uh, you know, my portion should only be yours. In other words, it's not a business. This is an amazing statement of reverence for life and of developing capacity for life. So that's also part of the picture. It's part of what a, a just society or, or Jewish value society would work for. Thank you so much, Rabiat. It also occurs to me that your vision of what Shabbat is, a day when human value is totally divorced from what we can produce, is a really important bulwark against our society's 
urge, I would say, Yitzhahara, to associate human value and human dignity with what we can add to the economy. And that, that feels so important to add to the conversation. In a few places, particularly around the status of women, you noted that you think it is part of the work of Judaism to work towards being even more life-affirming than it is right now. That that's part of the work of Jews and part of the work of Halafists. What what does that actually look like in practice? What's your vision for that? The greatness of the covenant is that it's working to take the status quo and move it to the ideal of the Torah's vision, Asianic vision. That greatness means that you have to get into the society at this moment and work on it. And the truth is in the history of the society, women were far more degraded and the Torah got it, did not repeal, did not overnight abolish, make women equal. Even though the Torah unequivocally says that men and women are both image of God, the fact remains that the joining in the system meant I've given this example. I think I may have given it in the in the first session. Maybe I didn't. The women were bought and sold. When the Torah was given at Sinai, assuming we're talking 12th century, women were chattels. They were bought and sold. The Torah did not give them full equality the next day. On the contrary, it starts the process of bringing equality by restricting, not eliminating, by restricting and ameliorating. In fact, the limitation of Torah is no more trafficking, commercial chatteling. Only a father can sell his daughter, and he can sell her only to somebody who will marry her. And when she marries, if he won't marry her, she goes free. And when she marries, she is to be treated like a free woman, not someone who was born. Now, again, frankly, I don't think it's anything to boast about, but it's a reality. So we're starting from a, a world in which women were bought and sold, and the tradition over the course of its many centuries and millennia had not gotten to full equality. That's the reality. To me, it's an important lesson that religious Jews and Jews in general should have great respect for the non for the general culture, not just for the Jewish culture, because what we think is possible in many ways is shaped by the general culture, not just by us. So thank God we're luckily living in an age when the general society made major breakthroughs with this idea of full equality and dignity, not just of women, which is a, this is a classic example, but of people of color, one can go on gay, homosexuals, whole groups that were treated as deviant, as inferior, as menacing, as demons. In our tradition, our, rather in our time, they have come forward and the culture has come forward to demand full dignity, full equality. Now, the sad truth is that out of loyalty to tradition and loyalty to the religion, there are serious opposition. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and in this community, it's the particularly most difficult thing we're dealing with. I was lucky enough to be married to Blue Greenberg, and she helped me see and helped the society, the traditional society see that women are not only fully capable, that many of the Torah's protections were meant to be for women and have not been properly applied and developed so that they can move to the next level. So a benevolent patriarchy is not as good and not as satisfactory and not as effective in achieving the image of God of women. And of course, women's learning has led to women's rabbinate and women's teaching. I mean, as I said, 
you're living examples. I mean that quite literally. We have amazing flowering of additional minds, additional insights, additional learning and talent, which has upgraded the human and the life quality of learning. So it's a major job still ahead of us. Again, it's never simple, even in the more progressive circles, there are all kinds of complications. The Me Too movement in the last few years has made us all much more aware in every area of life, even where they claim to be equal, there are serious potential issues. So this is a major job to be done. Now, now I get from that to, as I said, people of color. And again, it's very challenging right now. On the one hand, it's clearly unacceptable mistreatment, Black Lives Matter, the, the police brutality, you know, killing of unjustified killing of blacks is a serious problem. And on the other hand, how do you solve it without, and, and I think we have to make a major effort, how do you solve that? And there are without, for example, I think there are groups that have developed that are arguing that you have to be anti-racist. That means that means that you have to not only that if you're white, you're automatically privileged. If you're white, you're automatically guilty of participating in this crime. I think those are mistaken judgments. But again, we have to we have to deal with these things. We have to deal with the challenge of raising people's dignity without undermining other people's dignity or without creating a system where abuse in the name of the dispossessed becomes a new form of abuse instead of abuse in the name of the privilege. So I could go on and on. I mean, I, I think homosexuality too, I think I think we've discovered that we should be grateful to our culture and to our medicine. We've discovered that in fact, this is not some perverse choice. This reflects a genuine hormonal genetic factor. It's a natural form. It's just a minority form. Well, then it seems to me that we have the challenge now as Jews and as a people to apply the standards. What is authentic, respectful sexuality? What is committed love that expresses itself both in sexuality and family and children? We have to develop those standards and apply them and help gay people apply them. So they're judged not by discrimination and not by stereotypes, but they're judged and help to judge their own quality of life and of commitment. I, I always I find it paradoxical. The opposition to same-sex marriage, which is fierce. I once said, it seems to me what same-sex marriage is really about is gay people repudiating one of the, I think, mistaken reactions to the past persecution which is to say, well, well, we're promiscuous. And that's what gay sex is all about. I think that was a serious misjudgment. And here they come in and say, we understand that. We think our sexuality is not only normal, we would like it to be fulfilled in the same way that human sexuality is fulfilled based on respectful relationship, on faithfulness, on commitment. That's what same sex is all about. On raising children, having family. So it's really almost the way tragic that traditional people think they're defending God or defending the tradition, when in fact they're fighting the best values. I want to put in a plug for Hadar, which in terms of as an institution committed to egalitarianism and to developing the full capacity of women as leaders and as teachers and as rabbis and as creators of community. So I think it's, it's a pace setter. Hopefully many more will learn from it including in the most traditional sectors.
I want to say a personal thank you. You pointed to me as a living example, but I was ordained by Shivan Harat, an Orthodox rabbinical school, and I was able to do that because of the work that you and your wife, Blue Greenberg, have done throughout your lives, and I'm personally incredibly grateful for that. I wanted to finish off by asking, this vision of a life-affirming ethic, on the surface seems like it should be so intuitively attractive. And yet I think we've seen much more markedly over the past year in different segments of our society, be it anti-masking or various vaccine skeptics that in the most pronounced way, that isn't obvious to people, that ethic to choose life. And I'm wondering if you could talk about where you think that resistance comes from and what Jewish language might have to add to the conversation on those pieces to make it easier for people to choose life? I really would welcome your thinking too. I, I really, I'm sort of at the beginning of this understanding and I'm trying to grasp it. And it is really a source of dismay, sometimes shock. You know, I mean, it's almost like a recklessness, a denial of, you know, I mean, again, not just the anti-vaccination business, which based on, again, conspiracies and rumors and mis, misguided and mistreated data, you know, when, when in fact it's so clear, the overwhelming source. So I'm really wrestling with this too, including why is it that, so to speak, conservative or Republican, somehow this has become a synonym for being anti-mask. It's, uh, I don't have a full answer. I'm trying to avoid stereotyping and saying, you know, they're all deplorable. I would really welcome you to what I'll, if you if you'll give me a thought or two, maybe I'll give you my further response. But it's really a, quite a challenge. Go ahead, please. I'd love to hear your. I'm only at the, I'm still struggling with this a lot too. I can't imagine, I tend to assume people are reasonable people and come up with what they do on a day-to-day -day basis because of reasonable ideas. And part of where I've gone with thinking on this is that these might just be people being very honest about what society tells us on a day-to-day -day basis. You're suddenly telling me that life is the most valuable thing. I live in a society where people are allowed to die every day because they can't afford health care. I live in a society where God knows some people keep working far after it's harmful for them because they need to provide for their families because society won't do it. And you're suddenly telling me that my life is the most valuable thing or that someone else's life is the most valuable thing. I wonder if it actually is just a real expression of honesty of that isn't the way that our society has worked so far. And unfortunately, it may be a communal lie to some, to suddenly say, well, that's what we value the most. And it breaks my heart to say that, um, but that that's where I'm, my thinking is on that right now. I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. I'm curious if that sparks any reaction. Important idea. I mean, in a way, without credible, you're saying we're teaching these wonderful ideas, but given the day-to-day -day reality and not that credible, it may be a serious factor, which is another way of saying you know, the, the Talmud says it's a mitzvah to criticize or correct somebody if it will upgrade them. 
But then it says, well, what, how do you know if it'll upgrade him? It says, it says it's a mitzvah not to speak. If your words are not going to upgrade, it's just going to turn them off or offend them and turn them against you. Because the mitzvah don't say it. Even it's the same words. Don't say it because you're not helping. You're making it worse. What you're saying is that the, our words <laughs> have a credibility problem here. Maybe it's not a mitzvah because the contradiction of the daily life is such. I don't, that may well be. And it means we have to work harder on upgrading the society. And yes, it's really scandalous. America has such a poor, it's improved, thank God, but it, medical safety net, right? I mean, I'm, I'm living in Israel these months during the, the COVID. One reason why Israel is leading the world in vaccination is because they have a wonderful broad scale national health service done through private, semi-governmental, really uh, like NGO equivalents, medical health organizations, but everybody is in it. And as a result, they were able to get out the vaccination to everybody and they had really strong links and connection. As against, that's what happened in England now, well, they messed up a lot of things. They caught up on vaccination because they have a national health service. The United States, which is a far wealthier and which spends more money per patient and medicine, denies a lot of people is medical coverage because of the medical insurance issues. So it is really a scandal and in a certain sense it impugns America. What can I do? My answer is covenantally, this is my reality. We have to work and improve my reality. And I think we, the mistake, and that's, that's, the, that's the heartbreak of what you've just described, to react and it's, it's, it's a lie. But then because it's a lie, I drive myself deeper into destructive behavior. I mean, I still can't figure out. Kentucky is one of the poorest country, states in the union. And yet they have elected governments repeatedly that have done nothing for the poor. And when there was a chance under Obamacare to include Medicare for all the poor in Kentucky, that's white as well as black, the government refused to do it. And far from being punished by it, they are, they are still getting majority votes. I can't figure it out. And so that I say, it's a mix. On the one hand, we have to criticize ourselves. And on the other hand, we have to become aware that for either because of other people or other wrong leadership, uh, they are being led into the wrong response to what's a, what is a proper situation. So I, you know, I, I welcome further thoughts. I'm resting myself again. Is it say something about human beings that they, in a sense, punish themselves rather than look at what's good for them? I still believe strongly in democracy and that people should have the choice. And in a certain sense, I understand the argument why people say, "I don't want to wear a mask. I want to vaccine." Except the obvious point that in this case, you're not just hurting yourself; you're harming other people, and that's where. That's where the freedom of action has to be restricted for the greater good. But if you go too far, you're taking away freedom. So it's again, we're back to the issue of how far do you take something? And like I said about the words of Torah, if they're taken too far, they can become the opposite of what they're intended to do. If you take democracy too far, it can become you know, controlling and dismissive. And, and instead of taking these people seriously and trying to help them, you come to contempt, you treat them, I don't know, as I said, I think it was one of her tragic, you know, mistakes that Hillary Clinton's reaction, you know, the deplorables, it wasn't worthy of her, it wasn't worthy of her husband who have done a lot to help the people who are 
deprived, the people who are workers without unions and so on. So we, it's, a, it's a challenge, again, to keep our own balance and not to slip into self-defensive or self-superior, you know, putting down people like this. We have to go back and ask again, why are you doing this? Listen, here's the, do the best we can. Here's the facts. Here's the evidence. Help yourself. Help us help you. Thank you so much, Rafiets. Carla Worrell asks, many of your examples of choosing life are unavailable to the poor. Others can unintentionally harm the poor. What does it mean that the poor have less opportunity to choose life on a daily basis? Yeah. Again, I stress the point, this is the central Jewish point that the status quo, as good as it is, has serious weaknesses. I mentioned that in the first session, the prophetic vision of the future messianic age includes overcoming poverty, includes prosperity. And they say, what's prosperity got to do with life, spirituality? The answer is no, because poverty really restricts life and degrades the quality of life. Because I'm poor, I have less choices, and the absence of choice narrows my own self-respect, my own capacity to make a better life for myself and my children. Because I'm poor, I can't afford the medicine. Because I'm poor, throughout the world, millions, tens of millions of children are put to labor in the age of eight or six or nine. They have no education. Why? And education develops their minds. Education that could be the way to a better profession that could they could get out of poverty. Because poverty is more than a lack of money. It's a state of existence, and it's a state that is plagued. Now, again, we've had remarkable, this is, this is the greatness of modern culture. The Industrial Revolution, tremendous rise in economic well-being, in wealth. That's great, and that's a very important contribution. And in China, in the last 15, 20, 30 years, I guess maybe it's 50 years already now, a quarter of a billion of people were taken from poverty into a decent middle-class capacity. That's a great accomplishment. What's the problem? The very process of upgrading wealth and life in that way causes pollution, climate, global warming. So we, if you don't deal with the thing, the very source of life becomes a source of death unless you control it. And another example, in China, the very people who have supervised this, namely the Communist Party, but it's a dictatorship. And they have made the price of this upgrade economically, giving up the people's freedom, giving up the people's choice, privacy. So, so that's part of the complication. Even the good things we do to improve life have side effects that must be dealt with. It's interesting when you look at the original permission for me, I mentioned that. The Torah gives permission for me. If you look in the passage in the, in the parsha of Noah, at that very moment that God says meat is permitted, A, you have the restriction immediately because the side effect is you're allowed to kill animals, then life is cheaper, then animal life is not going to be respected. Number one, so you immediately try to reassert some value. And number two, it goes on to say even more striking, you'll be held responsible if you murder a human being. Well, what's that got to do with a murdering human being? But the answer is, any act that cheapens life, in the end, erode the respect and awe for life and could lead to murder. Or again, they give you the rabbi's application. The Torah was full of death penalties. The rabbis concluded, however, 
the death penalty, even when it's deserved, it means that the authorities are taking the life of a person. The reaction was, whether you mean it or not, you're removing or weakening the taboo, the sense of, well, how can you take a life of a human being? So the rabbis concluded that even though on the books it exists, they should restrict it and restrict it and restrict it so that it be never carried out. These are all the challenges to, down, to balance the side effects, to balance the conflicting norms, as you mentioned in the handicapped example, to balance, to balance conflicting norms and resolve the life is a full-time job. And again, you can never rest. And you never have fixed and final answers. It's a very dynamic process. And that's, it's a, we should welcome that. And frankly, we should treasure people like Tali or other rabbis and teachers who are willing to not only explore the Talmud and teach it, but willing to wrestle with its implications and how conflicting values are resolved and try to apply them to our conflicting values and then try to resolve them in the maximum way. Um, Sabrina Sojourner says, I have less a question and more a response to the last thing you said about racism and assumptions of people of color. I'm leaving aside the issue of privilege and want to focus on guilt. Rabbi Heschel said, some are guilty and all are responsible. I believe it's important to lovingly challenge people's assumptions so that we can own the responsibility we have to choose life and encourage others to do the same. You know, it's an important response. I would seriously think of not saying anything in this. I'll tell you why again. There is a vast, I mean, it's a history here. There's, there's a decades and centuries of mistreatment. There's a vast gap and gulf that has been created. The fact that Blacks were discriminated against, the fact that they're poor, it has a further consequence, just the elementary thing that a parent doesn't have the resources to stake the child to a better education or to a better opening, a better home or a better opening of a business. So it's a vicious cycle. And at this point in this stage of American history, it's really a disgrace. And therefore, I think one has to take extraordinary and really um, drastic action and not just simply say, well, we'll try a little harder. But then again, this is the challenge. And I, I, I decided to say it at the same time. And they were well-meaning people, African-Americans and others, their allies, who said, look, the whole American narrative is a fake. It's a lie. It's not a flawed democracy. It's a narrative built on pure exploitation, mostly of blacks, but never but any other people. And therefore, the American narrative should be rejected and replaced by the truth of all this terrible abuse. And whites should be broken out of their complacency and realize that they have been the beneficiaries. And therefore, whether they mean or not, maybe they are fully equal and fully respectful of people of color. They are the beneficiary. There's a half-truth there, but I think the half-truth violates, number one, respect for these people themselves. And I think it's really in a democracy you're going to bring a backlash that's going to defeat the very good intentions. And B, frankly, it says that just by being a person of color, your cause is just. And just by the need to make this correction, we have to give a blank check to the people leadership leading the anti-racism. Well, a blank check is not good for anybody. It undermines, and all systems need checks and balances and internal correction. God is the model that set up the whole covenant so that human beings 
could review and challenge. Moses challenged, the prophets challenged, rabbis challenged gods to, they try to reconcile. So I think giving blank checks will lead to very negative developments. After World War II, when the imperialist empires were overthrown, thank God, and they gave freedom to the colonials or the colonials took their freedom by revolt, there was this tendency to give them a blank check. And the truth is in 50, 70, 80% of the cases, the new leadership was just as abusive and just as vicious. And so my, that's my conclusion, not that the idea of ending colonialism was wrong, it's absolutely right. But what was wrong was the idea of a blank check. You need that help. If you don't have the criticism, you will make a mistake. If you don't have any checks and balances, then the mistake will not be correctable. That's the vicious part of dictatorships. So I come back to this very difficult, this is a challenge together. We need breakthroughs in this area. We need affirmative action and special help for African-Americans, but we need to do in a way that doesn't reverse justice. The Torah, which calls for special help for the poor, warns against mistreating the poor and giving them less equality in, in judgment. That Torah turns around and says, the dolo but when it comes to the law or to the rights, you should not give the poor a kind of automatic supremacy or superiority or correctness. You just got through telling me I should give them special help. You just got through telling me I should have extra responsibility for them. Yes, but if you make that final, I think, fatal step, that because people of color, uh, this has been a struggle with the Palestinian issue also, because you're an ex-colonial people, you're automatically right. It's not so. And if you don't keep that check going, you will. these people will misbehave also. So I, I, I leave you with it, all of us with it. We're stuck. <laughs> we're stuck, meaning this is our time. We have an overwhelming moral obligation to fix and improve and to really, in a major way, upgrade this group and other groups that have suffered all these years. But how we do that without substituting new evils or new misbehaviors is very real. And of course, in our correct focus on African-Americans, we should not leave behind the Appalachian poor or whites. And we should not simply, as I said, anybody who dares to disagree or qualify or nuance should be not be dismissed as a racist. I think it's a much more complicated problem. So we need each other. We need to trust each other. We need to work together. We need to make sure that good intentions don't outrun the capacity to execute well and if we do that, I believe this can be a moment of breakthrough, as we had moments of breakthrough for women and for others. None of those breakthroughs are finished, but I think if we keep working at it, and I believe in democracy and in America's capacity even now, as Martin Luther King said, he said again, all men are, he looks forward to the day when all men are created equal, when his children will be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by their character and what they are and what they contribute to life. This is an unfinished challenge, and it's, I say again, it's a privilege to be alive at such a time. It's a call, that's the covenantal call, to lift our game and to do better, and I hope we will. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Jeremy Tabak, and Susan Pilevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chavinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.